Well, there are some passages in Scripture that are hard to preach on. There are some passages that are hard for us as Christians to speak about because of the harrowing truth that is so often contained in them. Today is one such passage. Is truce will affect friends and family that you and I know personally in our lives, those who refuse to repent and sur surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to him himself, but instead choose to live a selfish life, a self-seeking life. So on the one hand, I approach this passage today with an element of urgency in my bones and a heaviness and, and actually a sadness in my heart. But also, I approach this passage with hope in my spirit. Hope that there is still time, still time for our friends and family who do not believe to be saved, to come to know that personal relationship with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and to be welcomed into fellowship with Almighty God of the universe. Now, we haven't been in Luke's Gospel for a couple of weeks, so just to give us a quick reminder as to where we are and what's been happening, if you remember, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and the crowd around him the correct usage and approach to the wealth in the world, their wealth. And you may remember the last visit, about three weeks ago, I believe, the last visit in Luke focused primarily on the Pharisees who had been listening in to Jesus' teaching about wealth and the correct use of it and who had taken offence to what they heard Jesus saying. Because to them, being rich was a sign of blessing and favour from God. And being poor was a sign of God's judgment, a belief that was incorrect. So to close out this particular teaching on this subject of wealth and the correct use of it, Jesus shares primarily with the Pharisees, but also in earshot, I would imagine, of his disciples and the crowd, a profound, conclusive parable. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke 16, verses um, 19 to 31. Now, there is some debate around this these verses in, uh, in Christendom, whether it's actually a parable or whether it's actually reference to a, uh, a real event. I lean toward it being a parable, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One primary, which we'll get onto at some point. But the truth is, it doesn't matter really whether it's a parable or, a, or a, a, a story of a real event. The underlying truth, the underlying principle Jesus is teaching is still the same. 
Still the same. So let's read this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to call my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are, there are many passages in your word that we would quite happily skip over and not really want to tackle or not really want to understand your heart and meaning behind them because of the reality that is contained with them. Lord, this is one such passage. Lord, we know that you spoke a lot about judgment, about hell, about the afterlife, and about our choices in this life. And Lord, if you preached it, if you taught it, then that is what we will do. But Lord, we ask, we ask as your humble servants, Lord, to not only bring comfort to us believers in this room, whose assurance and salvation is assured, but I also pray, Lord, that you give us the encouragement through this verse to understand the urgency of the role 
of the only true job that you've given every believer in this world, and that is to proclaim Jesus to the lost in order that they may be saved. So Lord, use me as your mouthpiece this morning and help us as we journey through this parable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus begins by giving us this opening prelude to this parable, introducing us to these two characters that in reality are at opposite ends of the social spectrum. Verse 19 begins, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and, (coughs) excuse me, uh, clothed in purple apparel. Now, purple was an expensive colour. It was expensive to produce back then anyway because it was made by dyeing clothes um, in the the contents of the mucus sacs of snails that lived in the shores in and around the region. That would be an interesting job, wouldn't it? Smashing up snails for for, for, for your everyday job. We're also told that he lived in a gated house and ate sumptuously with, I'm sure, plenty of luxurious food. Now, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, every now and then he ate with sumptuous food. This was every day. It's not like us where we might, you know, go out for a nice meal every now and then on a birthday or around Christmas. He was living life every day with a lot more than he probably needed. Jesus then introduces us to this second character, a man called Lazarus, who was at the polar opposite of the rich man. And in verse 20, Jesus says this, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Lazarus was most likely crippled because, as we read in the passage there, he was laid at the rich man's gate. So it gives us the impression that someone has put him there. And he was in a very sorry state of affairs. Not only was he covered in sores, which would have made him ceremonially unclean in the Jewish culture. But to make it worse, the unclean, dirty street dogs would come and lick his sores. I mean, who knows? It may well have been the disease that he got from them licking his open wounds that ended up making him die. We don't know. But if anyone spent any time you know, around the world and you've seen the, the wild dogs that roam around cities, you get a picture of what he was having to face. We're also told the reason that he was there, and that was the hope that he might be able to eat some, just some, just the crumbs of the leftover food that was heading from the rich man's table to his rubbish bin outside. It's all he wanted. It's all he wanted. Now, irrespective of how rich or poor people are in this life, there is one guarantee that places rich 
and poor on the same level ground. Same level ground. The death of our mortal bodies and our exit from this current life. All will face it. None can hide from it. And you cannot take anything with you, not even the clothes on your back. Paul says this very thing in his letter to Timothy, for we brought nothing into this world when we were born and we cannot take anything out of it when we die. See, when we die, our bodies return back to the ground from where they originated, but our souls... Our souls, the very essence of the personhood of a human being, what we would call our life, the love that we have, the feelings that we have, the emotions that we show, the thoughts that we have continuously throughout our life, never die. They never die. Because they are, in essence, what makes up our soul, and that lives for eternity. At some point in both the lives of Lazarus and the rich man, both succumb to this fate, a fate none of us can avoid. And we read in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice that. We don't, we don't hear that Lazarus was buried. He wouldn't have been buried. He was an inconvenience in the street. A beggar that, that was just, just an irritation. He was probably taken out to the, you know, to, to the, uh, the, 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 the rubbish dump out the city and dumped in there, which is where they, you know, in the Valley of Hinnom, where they used to dump all the, the you know, the dead criminals off the cross and burn all the street's rubbish. There was no burial for him, but for the rich man, well, he was rich, of course, he was buried. <clears throat> so the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It is at this point in this parable that not only does the setting change, but we also see a complete reversal of position for the two characters in this parable. Yes, the bodies of Lazarus and the rich man may have ceased to stop working, but their disembodied souls have lived on and are faced with the very different realities to what they had in this life. First, we have this beautiful picture of Lazarus being carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, as sometimes it's called. It's the only time in Scripture we get this terminology. This image of an angelic escort, though, isn't to be taken and shouldn't be taken necessarily literally, as it was a common or common imagery in Judaism, of being, of being brought and welcomed into fellowship with righteous believers in heaven. It's a beautiful picture, though, isn't it? 
But what does this mention of Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom mean? Well, Abraham was the figurehead, the father, if you will, of the Jewish nation. So to be taken to Abraham's side for a Jew was to go to a place of peace and of comfort. This is a good outcome for Lazarus, is it not? It's a good outcome. In life, Lazarus had battled to get through just the every day, the moment by moment, the hour by hour. He was looked down upon, I'm sure, by people just passing him by the street, probably the rich man. The rich man probably knew he was out there, looked out of his window and saw him sitting by the gate, would step over him as he went off to get his, his, uh, do his chores for the day or wherever rich people do. struggled every day but now he's resting with Abraham and others faithfully faithful to God complete reversal of the life that he had on earth praise God and we shouldn't be surprised that this is the outcome for Lazarus in this parable is God not the great comforter does he not have a special place in his heart for the lost for those cast out. We see this throughout the Gospels, don't we? He does have a special place in his heart and he draws near to those who are struggling, both Lazarus and us. He does draw near if we allow him, if we are struggling. Lazarus's name even means God is my help. God is my help. The rich man was not so lucky. His soul ended up in this place called Hades in torment. What is Hades? Well, in Greek mythology, Hades or Pluto was the god of the underworld and sometimes this word was used as the name for the underworld itself. In the Bible, Hades is the Greek equivalent of what in Hebrew is called Sheol. Sheol. It is the realm of the dead, the intermediate state, often called or referred to as the grave or the pit, a holding abode, if you will, in our context, for all the unrighteous souls who in life lived in defiance to God, refusing to acknowledge him as God and who died without repentance and surrender. It is a place where the souls await the final judgment of God, a place more commonly referred to in our conversations today and rendered in our English Bibles as hell. Now, time doesn't permit us to go into all of the aspects of of this today. Maybe we'll do a separate session on it. But this is another one of those situations where you find throughout Scripture the word hell, 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 hell. But in the Greek, in the Hebrew, there are different meanings behind them. It's like, remember we looked at the word love, our English word love. But in the Greek, in the Hebrew, there's different words for love. It's a similar thing here. 
It is also suggested that within Hades is a place called Tartarus, as I'm sure some of you may have heard that word before. This place called Tartarus, which is in the lower bowels of Hades, the place the rebellious angels that we read about in Scripture are in chains and a place reserved for the worst of sinners in this life, including the false teachers and false prophets throughout time, which is why you've got to be very, very careful if you proclaim to be a prophet, particularly if you're you're doing it for your own gain. Speaking about false teachers and prophets, Peter gives us a glimpse of this. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, he says, but cast them into hell, that word hell there is Tartarus. That is our English equivalent, but it's Tartarus. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment what is going to happen to the ungodly. It's 2 Peter 2, 4 to 6. So the rich man is in this place called Hades, and we read in verse 23, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and call my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flame, in this flame. Now we must be careful not to think that there will be communication between those in hell and those in heaven as we see in this parable. I don't believe there will be. And apart from here, I don't know of any other place that gives us the illusion that's possible. But nor do I think that's the point Jesus is trying to make in the parable here. However, there are some striking and harrowing aspects of this verse that are just frightening to consider, which I do believe there is an element of truth to. The rich man is continuously aware of his previous life upon earth. He is aware of his life upon earth. He had memories as he knew who Abraham and who Lazarus were that he was seeing in the distance. And he still had feelings and senses as he cried out to Abraham for mercy from the torment and anguish that he was suffering. Maybe he was trying to, you know, uh, rely on his Jewish lineage as some sort of get out of jail card. Begging for Abraham to send Lazarus to bring him some relief from the anguish that he was in. What irony. What irony. How long did Lazarus beg the rich man for some scraps from his table to relieve his suffering? And now the roles have reversed. And what was Abraham's reply? Do you know the thing about this parable? In some respects, you don't need to preach on it. 
I think it's pretty clear. It does, yeah, I think it's a pretty clear passage. What does Abraham reply? Child, remember that you in this lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to and none may cross from there to us. The rich man's lineage is of no use to him now. His cry for mercy was futile. Even if Abraham wanted to help, he couldn't help him because there was no way for either to get to the other side. The chasm was too deep and the distance too wide. A picture of this great gulf between heaven and hell. Think about the rich man's gate. Kept Lazarus out, didn't it? He couldn't climb over it, couldn't get through it. He couldn't get to the place of plenty, which would have been the rich man's house. Now the reverse has changed. This picture is one of the current and future realities. The separation between heaven and hell is real. There will be no crossing to the other side. Those in hell who find themselves, God forbid, in hell have no mercy. They have no forgiveness. Their fate that they chose in life is now their eternal, unchangeable reality. The rich man realises that his fate is sealed, that there is no longer any hope for him. He failed to repent of his selfish behaviour during this life and now no longer has the opportunity to do so. There's been lots of debate whether there is another opportunity beyond for repentance. I don't think scripture talks about, any, about that anywhere. Realising this, he cries to Abraham and says, then I beg you, Father, to send him, I mean the arrogance, to send him. It gives us this picture, doesn't it? That even still in that state, he thinks Lazarus is beyond him. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest I also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. This parable would have been hard for those listening to Jesus back then 
as it is, I'm sure, for us to hear today. But I have to be honest. I have to be honest. I haven't been able to stop thinking about that last verse throughout the latter part of this week. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Friends, God's divine right was to choose to share his truth through Moses and the prophets throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And today, he has given us the truth of his words in this remarkable book, the Bible, and the testimony of believers who proclaim the truth of Christ to the world. The people still do not believe. Still do not believe. Thousands of years. Rebellious nature still do not believe. You see, unlike those listening to Jesus in this moment, back then, we have had a man die and rise to life again. Have we not? Jesus Christ. But even even with all the strong biblical and non-biblical evidence that we have of this event occurring, of it being a historical event, as we some of us saw in the video we watched uh, the other day, and the amazing way that God has worked in so many different ways, in millions of lives over the centuries, still people refuse to believe and thus seal their own fate beyond the grave. Abraham was right, wasn't he? Neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Friends, this life that we lead, the realities of the life beyond the grave are not a game. It's not a joke. And we, we should, because scripture demands it, we should always treat it with the respect that it deserves. There are so many churches out there, so many Christians out there that do not like talking about anything to do with hell or punishment or God's wrath. Some even believe that Satan and hell itself, they're just, they're just figments of our imagination or they're, they're there, they're stories to tell us, you know, to keep us in check. They're not really real. That's not what I see in scripture. If we believe this is true, at least, some people out there don't, you know, don't, they skip over stuff because they, they don't believe some of it is. That's the world, the reality we're living in. Remember, Jesus taught on this so much during his life. If he did so, there's a reason. There's a reason. There is a very real hell, a place of punishment and torment for those who, in essence, have stuck two fingers up to God throughout their whole life. Oh, it's a joke. Yeah, you can believe, you can believe all that stuff if you like but I'm going to believe in what I see. There is, on the flip side though, a very real heaven. Amen Amen indeed. The place where the righteous dwell with God in peace and rest. A place where those who have taken 
They've stepped into what they felt in their heart that is this real. I need to take a chance. I need to step in faith and see. And they've come to realize the amazing relationship there is to have with Jesus and with God. Those, for those people, there is a very real heaven. A very real heaven. And that should give us comfort. That should, that should help us to get through whatever trial we are going through today. This is not the only life. This is a blip in the scale of eternity. Let's be honest. I deserve hell. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. We all deserve hell. I can promise you of that. If God was to come right now and to put all of our hearts and our minds up on that screen one by one, we would all see we all deserve hell. Everything we think from day to day, the things we think about others, we all deserve hell. Let us be under no illusion of that. But God's love and his mercy abounds. His love and his mercy for his creation, us, gives us a way to avoid this coming reality. And he gives us a way out. I've said this many times before. That blows my mind. How many times has someone hurt you and you've gone, I'm not forgiving them. I'm not forgiving them. God has every right to do that. But he doesn't. He says, I forgive you. Come to me, repent. And I will wrap my arms around you and I will be with you throughout this life. I will strengthen you, encourage you, equip you. And when your life ends, you will be taken in a blink of an eye into my presence where there is peace and there is rest. What a promise. What a gift. Friends, if you are here today and you haven't repented, if there was ever a passage, this is it. If you haven't repented of the selfish life that you are leading and that every every one of us in this room have led, you're not alone. We all have led selfish lives, lives opposite to what God calls us do. I implore you today, consider giving your life to Christ without delay. Without delay. The only way to guarantee entry to heaven is to place your faith alone in Jesus as your Lord, as your King, and as your Saviour. A gift given to you, to me, and to the whole of humanity through God's incredible grace. There is no gift that can ever surpass that gift of God's grace to us. The rich man knew all too well he had lost his opportunity to do so when he was presented with this post-death reality. Don't do the same. 
Consider the cost of following Christ, because it's never promised an easy road. Consider the cost, but I tell you, it's the best decision you'll make. Don't leave it till tomorrow. Don't leave it till the day after, because you do not know what's going to happen when you walk out that door today. It's part of the reason why we have a prayer area over here at the end of the service. Come and find out more. Come and ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask. There's no such thing as a silly question. Come and ask. Let us pray with you. Let us walk this journey with you. So what is our takeaway from today? Well, that was, this is a tough one, isn't it? What is our takeaway from today? What are, what are we to do with this? And I think there are two things, really. One, Jesus' message through the whole of chapter 16, and if you haven't been here as we've travelled through 16, I'd go back, go back and watch them, has been to teach the correct use and approach to wealth, which is one of the biggest snares around humanity's neck. It was for the Pharisees, and it is for many today. And where we are in our relationship with Jesus, and how we approach and use wealth in this life, will have an effect on our life beyond the grave. If you live separated from God in this life, if you have lived denouncing Jesus and using your wealth for your own personal gain, you will, I'm afraid to say, suffer the consequences in the next life just like the rich man did. Oh, but I'm, you know, I'm a good person. I give to charity and I do help people. That's great. That is great. Well done. Seriously, well done. But your salvation isn't secure. You can do all the nice things you want in the world. Your salvation is not secure. You refuse to place your faith and trust in the wealth giver. And at the same time, you will suffer the same fate as the rich man did if you do not turn and repent and give your life to Christ. If you are a Christian and live in unity with God through faith in Jesus, your salvation is secure. Amen. That is a hallelujah moment, people. Amen. Hallelujah. And you will be welcomed into heaven like Lazarus was. But how we use our wealth will determine the reward and responsibility in heaven. See the difference for the believer to those who don't don't believe? Now, quick disclaimer, we're nearly done, people. Jesus is not saying in the parable that if you are wealthy, you are automatically condemned to hell. Nor is he saying that if anyone who is poor has a golden ticket into heaven. That is not what he's saying. I don't, you might be sitting here today a millionaire. You might sit in here with, 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 with ten, 10 quid in the bank. God looks at your heart. What are you going to do with that? God doesn't, God doesn't hold back people being millionaire and people being poor. That's not the issue. It never has been. It's how we do, what we do with what we have that he's looking at. He's looking at the heart. There are some very generous givers in this church. There are some people who don't. God's looking at the heart, not whether you're a millionaire or not. 
want to put that disclaimer out there before I get emails. <laughs> Just remember the three core principles we have looked at over the last few sessions in Luke. Number one, be generous with your wealth. Whether you've only got 10 quid or a million quid, just be generous with it, as Christ would call, calls us to be generous. Be faithful. Number two, be faithful stewards of your wealth. It's not your money. You're a steward of it. It's God's money, and he's given it to you to say, right, what are you going to do with it now? So be faithful stewards of it and put wealth in its right place. Too many people in this world, wealth is their God. It's what they worship, it's what they strive for, it's what they get out of bed for. Put it in its right place. God first, because it all comes from him, him anyway. And hold it loosely, as Emma prayed. Hold it loosely. Allow God to direct you as to how best to use it. Can I invite the band up, please? Second and finally, if there was ever a passage to give us Christians a kick up the backside to become more urgent in our only true responsibility in this life, which is to share Jesus to the unsaved, share salvation in Jesus, and share the hope that is inside us, then this is one of them. We might have our earthly jobs and we go off and we do those things, and they're great. Praise God we've got them. But our true job, our true role in Christ's kingdom on earth is to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, and to share the testimony in our hearts. I speak to myself more than anyone else when I say that as Christians we can so easily become comfortable in our churches, comfortable in our assurance of salvation, that when opportunities present themselves, we don't always seize the moment. We don't always grab it. We can often talk ourselves out of speaking to people about Jesus because we feel we don't have the confidence. We, um, we, don't, uh, we don't know what to say. Or we, we, we are fearful of what people might think. Friends, is our God not able to help us overcome any situation we face? Of course he is. Is the Holy Spirit not able to give us the right words in the right moment as we've seen him do in the scriptures? Can he do that? Mm. Of course he can. <clears throat> then let us rely more on God and the power of the Holy Spirit working through us in those moments than in our own inabilities which too often hinder us. Because if we do that, we will see God do incredible things through us and in the hearts of those who we share his truth with. Amen? Amen. Amen.